we got the alternative energy free autonomy and welcome to the radioactive show produced at the studios of 3CR Melbourne and heard nationally on the community radio network hello and welcome i'm ka this week's rad show has been recorded and produced on the unceded lands of the Wadjuk Noongar, or better known as Perth for 3CR Melbourne, and broadcast nationally on the Community Radio Network. On this week's show you'll hear the highlights from the recent webinar Yaliri, A Case for Environmental Law Reform. The story of the Yaliri uranium mine approvals process at a state and federal level is shocking. The Western Australian EPA rejected the mining application because of an unacceptable risk of causing extinction of unique species, yet the WA government approved the mine immediately before calling an election, and the federal government did the same thing. Under the recently obtained Freedom of Information, alarming documents demonstrate a lack of transparency and an urgent need for environmental law reform to protect species from becoming extinct. We hope this will give listeners some important insights to encourage writing a submission for the Environmental Protection Biodiversity Conservation Act review. You will hear from Ruby Hamilton, a solicitor from the Environmental Defender's Office of Western Australia. You will hear from the Australian Conservation Foundation's environmental investigator, whose name will remain confidential, and Mia Pepper from the Mineral Policy Institute. Thanks for having me, everyone. I have really enjoyed working on the Ulleri case because it was such an important battle to fight and getting to work with uh, the Conservation Council and with the Jawal traditional owners was a really great way to come into the legal profession that I don't think a lot of people would have the privilege of. So it's always great to talk about what that case means and uh, what we can do going forward. So what we actually have at the moment is uh, a review of that legislation, of that EPBC Act. Um, And what we can learn from the Ulleri, the experience with the Ulleri approval, um, is just some some ways that it could be reformed from a public interest perspective um, and ways to avoid those sorts of decisions being made in the future. Uh, So what I can do is just go through a few options that you might want to raise in a submission to that process because it is open for public submissions for another couple of weeks. I think it's about two weeks, closed on the 16th of April, and it's a great way to sort of participate in some potential law reform to um, avoid the situation where our environmental laws are powerless against things like extinctions and um, disruption to traditional ownership rights. Um, So the first one that... I'll touch on that I think I've seen raised in the chat a little bit um, is the, the, the triggers um, for assessment, so the matters of national environmental significance. Um, so in terms of ensuring that projects like uranium mines continue to be subject to the EPBC Act um, framework, it's really important to keep what we have now, which is the nuclear trigger. Um, so that's the provision that makes nuclear actions like mining uranium um, uh, caught by the EPBC Act. Um, And it ensures that the environment as a whole is then considered in relation to nuclear projects. So that was actually really important in Ulleri because it meant that issues like extinction, which aren't a trigger at the moment of themselves, were assessed and reported on in that decision. So if you think that other things should be caught by the EPBC Act, um, you could suggest the inclusion of new matters of national environmental significance as triggers So this might be clean air and water, a safe climate, um, no extinctions. So 
those things do have to have some link to a, a national matter um, because it's federal legislation. Um, it just has to have that sort of link to something that, that's a matter protected by an international treaty. So the Paris Agreement might be that sort of a link. But if you think that there's something that is a matter of national environmental significance that should be protected by that legislation, that's something that could be raised in, in your submission. Um, another one that um, comes up a little bit is uh, merits review. So the WA court case dealt with the minister's decisions on the merits review of the EPA's report. So uh, the minister had agreed that the proposal was environmentally unacceptable and through that process, um, we were able to uh, deal with a lot more of the merits-based arguments. So there's sort of substantive arguments about um, environmental and cultural considerations and compare that to the judicial review, which we undertook in the court, which had to talk about a really specific section um, of the EP Act because you need a technical legal error. So in that courtroom, we talked about section 45, subsection 6, subsection A, subsection 2, and we never talked about the Steiger fauna or the Chihuahua traditional owners or anything like that. So what you get in a merits review process is the opportunity to bring forward evidence um, and to talk about whether the decision was the best decision rather than whether it was a legally available decision. So we don't have that at the federal level under the EPBC Act. Um, and that could be another thing to, to suggest that gets included um, there are a lot of examples of really great merits review systems. Um, like in New South Wales, they have a land and environment court and that might sound familiar to you because you might have heard of uh, like the Rocky Hill decision from last year um, in which a community group was able to prevent a coal mine from going ahead um, based on a court agreeing that it was not the best decision to be made um, in that context. Uh, so that's the second, the second sort of... Um, Point that you might get in a better EPBC Act. Uh, the last one is a national EPA that um, could help in decisions like this. So, so the court case um, at the state level for Uliri dealt with that state-based assessment and the merits review. And that was actually of the, the EPA's report that was provided to the Commonwealth as part of the EPBC Act process as well. So in these assessments that the EPA undertakes, um, there's an environmental impact assessment and they're quite unique in the way that they're set up. Um, the EPA is an independent expert body tasked solely with environmental considerations and it was in carrying out those functions that the EPA recommended the O'Leary project shouldn't go ahead because it had those environmentally unacceptable outcomes and that was then confirmed through the merits review process. So there's no equivalent body at the federal level. Uh, the environmental impact assessment is just carried out primarily by the Department of Environment, uh, which then reports to the federal minister. So what a federal EPA could do is undertake more independent and technically expert assessments of projects um, and ensure that that scientific evidence is really put into focus because this is environmental protection legislation and um, from a public interest perspective, you can see that that is really the fundamental consideration. Connected to those sort of benefits is the opportunity to somewhat depoliticise environmental decision-making. Uh, we all know how much that impedes the public interest um, in the area. So it's pretty apparent in the timeline of the Uliri project um, at the federal level that 
politics completely overpowered the science and the public interest um, in that approval. So a federal EPA could go some way to removing risks of corruption, conflict of interest um, and that political agenda and instead be equipped to act more independently and to focus on scientific evidence without bias. Um, so that could be another suggestion to make in your submission on the EPBC Act um, as a way to bring more science and independence to the approvals process um, and have an agency like the EPA that's that's able to make those strong recommendations that projects like Ulyri, um are not acceptable. So that's a f- just a few options. For now, I think those are a few lessons that we can um, take moving forward as uh, ways to improve our environmental laws and their ability to actually protect the environment. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, broadcast nationally on the Community Radio Network. The Australian Conservation Foundation's environmental investigator gives an excellent presentation on her findings on the federal approval of Ulyri that will highlight the critical need for increased transparency in the assessment process. A slideshow was used for this presentation and this can be viewed at www.vimeo.com forward slash 4048390013. Coming from Canberra at first, I would like to acknowledge the Ngunnawal people um, whose land I am speaking to you from today. I want to acknowledge their elders, past, present and emerging. Sovereignty was never ceded. Um, and I think this is a perfect example of the project of colonisation and invasion that is ongoing in our country. Um, and in saying that, I'd really like to acknowledge my colleague, Dave Sweeney, who's on the call with us today, um, who is a magnificent ally and a real inspiration uh, in terms of working with traditional owners and empowering them to fight for their rights. I'm ex-department, so I come to you from the dark side. I spent about eight years working in the environment portfolio in its various iterations, mostly as an investigator, which means I know how it all works and I have a particular set of skills that the government gave me that makes me a bit of a menace to the government. In saying that, everything that I'm going to talk to you about today is stuff that I got through freedom of information, which means that it's information that you could get as a citizen. In fact, it's information that is your right as a citizen to have access to. And I'd just like to use this small bit of time to plug that um, democracy starts with your right to vote in an election, but it doesn't end there. Um, Giving submissions to reviews like this, putting in FOI requests, um, asking the questions of the government, making them accountable is absolutely your right and um, is what makes for a functioning democracy. So I encourage you all to participate in this um, as fulsomely as you can. Ask you to consider for a moment the ethics of ending all possibilities, all future possibilities of a species. It's beyond murder. It's not a single living thing. It is any future iteration of that living thing. And we are meant to have laws in place that protect um, us from doing naughty things like that and companies from doing things like that. And um, I suppose my presentation today is about how this was achieved and how an approval can go from basically being stalled um, and the department thinking that the EPBC Act couldn't allow extinction to it being approved in a matter of about 18 months. So the story all starts in 2011 for me. Um, And what you're looking at here is a slide from a presentation that Cameco gave to the federal government 
in November 2017, basically saying that a proposed condition of theirs that would prevent the extinction of a species was not realistic and unlikely to be achieved ever. So pretty gross stuff. And you can see that the department formed the view after that meeting that um, it was unlikely that they could avoid the extinction of 12 species of um, ground prawns, as my friend calls them, um, in, in making this approval. And so you can see at point 11 there that the department's basically decided this is against the principles of the act. Um, so we're looking at an approval that was on the books for about a decade. The department had formed a view that it was an untenable approval under the act. Then we had, of course, the legal challenges in WA as well, which have been addressed. Minister Freinberg, who was the environment minister at the time, advised the company that we would await the WA Supreme Court decision before um, signing off on anything. The company wrote to the department saying they disagreed and then something magical happens and in the space of about a month, the department considers accepts Cameco's arg argument, completely changes their decision and carries on with the approval. Now, what happened between the 22nd of May and the 27th of June, you ask? Well, Minister Canavan went to Kalgoorlie and met with Cameco. And then Cameco had a bit of a yarn with Minister Frydenberg on the phone. And they're pretty worried about uh, the message this will send anti-development groups. So you can see what kind of view they have of traditional owners and of people like us who care about the environment and the public, basically. They want to shorten the time frame. And you can see that Minister Frydenberg then asked the department to progress the assessment. And um, just to put a nail in the coffin, Minister Canavan wrote to Frydenberg and um, made sure that it was expedited. So by December 2018, there was um, a set of proposed decisions on the desk of Minister Melissa Price, who was the environment minister by then. But we know Minister Price doesn't do a whole lot in this time. She didn't do a whole lot in her entire tenure as environment minister. Um, so it sat with her until early 2019 when the company got pretty upset that it looked like there was an election coming. And at the time, you'll recall that we really, really thought that the coalition were not going to win this one. Um, and it seems like Cameco held that view as well. They're getting pretty upset that the budget's being handed down early and it's looking like they won't get a decision before the election, as you can see down here. Um, alas, Minister Price comes good for them after their lobbying with the department and she sends them some proposed um, approval conditions on the 5th of March. A really important thing to note is point eight up here that um, the department recommended Minister Price agree not to publish the proposed decision notice for public comment. Um, internal documents say that this suggestion was because they thought the public had looked at it enough through the WA process, which is insane when you consider the fact that this process through the WA um, approval process was literally in court while this is being signed. So clearly the public is not done talking about this issue. Um, so she didn't tell the public, but she did um, give her draft to the company so they could have a little think about it. She gave a draft to Greg Hunt, um, who was the health minister at the time, still is. Um, and she gave the draft approval to Minister Canavan, who at the time was the Minister for Northern Australia and Resources. Now, Cameco 
instead of talking to the department about the proposed conditions or talking to the environment minister, as you would expect, they went straight to Minister Canavan and his department and they said, we've got a problem. We don't like conditions 10. We don't like 10A. We don't like 10B. Basically, the conditions were requiring the company to establish a saltbush population before they knock the other one down. So let's make sure we don't destroy 50% of this species. That was on the 14th of March. Uh, a couple of days later, after speaking with Minister Canavan, they provided the Department of Environment and the Department of Industry and Resources a copy of their issues. And then Minister Canavan wrote to the Environment Minister, um, coincidentally having issues with the exact same conditions and asking that they award it down. Um, this all happens on the 5th of April, which is a really important date because this is the same day that the department gets um, an urgent request to clear this and get it off the books. And this is also the same day that Minister Canavan allegedly threatens to quit Cabinet to um, get Adani over the line. And we believe Cameco's um, Yaliri project as well. So what does the department do? They change the conditions. They get rid of the part about having to um, not clear before establishing that important population of saltbush. That's all hunky-dory. And on the 10th of April, the day before the election was called, you can see Minister Price making special note of Matthew Canavan's comments, approves the uh, approval. And uh, this is important. It, has, it takes effect until 2043. So this decision was made in the dying hours of her tenure as Environment Minister. And this decision has such a lasting effect. And if you think about the impact of radioactive waste, we're talking about thousands of years and it goes well beyond the life of this approval. And that's something definitely to bear in mind when we're talking about the independence of decision makers under the EPBC Act and things being done for political gain. This is, this is Minister Price's electorate, don't forget. In the decision brief, the department still notes that this will cause the extinction of 12 subterranean fauna species. However, the department notes that the minister's will is going another way and it's completely legal for her to do that. And so in the dying hours of the day before the election was called, I think the last email was sent at about 9.30, um, this massive brief is sent to Minister Price. Probably too long a brief for her to be able to read in the last three hours of the 10th of April, yet she signed the brief on the 10th of April, allegedly. Um, but we don't hear back from her until a week later when uh, <clears throat> her office says that she's finally had a look at it. So it looks to us like she may well have signed it and backdated it during caretaker period. Um, now the department says they received a decision. Their protocol is to publish the decision within 24 hours, but we all know that didn't happen. So something's happened along the way here. So it's 17th of April, they get notification that this is a goer. They tell the company straight away. And you can see um, that they're happy for the department to proceed as discussed. Let us know when it's uploaded on the website. And we now know that it was uploaded on the website way, way later. And it looks like the minister's office was holding up the Uliri decision being made public. And it wasn't made public until the dying hours of the day before Anzac Day. And it was buried pages into the approvals page. So definitely an effort to bury um, the public um, attention. Luckily, some people have some internal sources and we managed to get this out anyway. But you can just see that this is an indication of how low on the list the public is as a priority to the minister's office and to the department. Now, I tried to get documents from Minister Price's office, but um, you'll find that the FOI Act only applies to current ministers. 
And what that means is if you enter caretaker immediately after making a decision, those documents aren't subject to FOI anymore. Um, and if you don't hand them over to Minister Lee, which she didn't, then those documents are technically at archives. Or you might ask archives and they don't actually have them either. So the documents just don't exist anymore. And I wanted to end on that point because I think transparency in environmental decision-making is really, really critical. And the FOI Act um, has its own deficiencies and it is very slow. And there's no reason why we couldn't have been made aware of these issues at the same time that the companies were, at the same time that Minister Canavan was. And so I just reiterate that we need to keep the right for third parties to challenge these bad decisions. It's the only entry that we have to have any comments, to have any say as members of the public and as NGOs and as scientists and as people who care about the environment and they are lacking as Ruby said we need to have the opportunity for merits reviews it shouldn't just it shouldn't just be about whether it was a legal option which this certainly was it should be about whether there was merit in it whether it was the right decision and I'm sure you can all agree this was not the right decision we need an independent authority you've just seen how lobbying and politicians and the interests of a giant uranium company that's based in Canada is more important than traditional owners, more important than the interests of your average member of the pub public. <clears throat> and of course, we need way more transparency. We absolutely think that the nuclear and uranium protection should remain in the EPBC Act. It's a no-brainer to us, but it will absolutely form part of our position as ACF when we make our submission to the review, and I urge everyone to also consider it. You're listening to The Radioactive Show. On this week's show, I'm playing highlights from the recent webinar, Yaliri, A Case for Environmental Law Reform. We now go to Mia Pepper from the Mineral Policy Institute. So I'll just touch on the bilateral agreements. And the other one is, is about the threatened species process for the subterranean fauna. Um, so like lots of mining projects in WA, when when companies are doing their environmental investigations and, and studies, which they're only really required to do if they have a project that has a matter of national environmental significance and they have to do that high level of assessment, is when a lot of companies find new species because a lot of these places haven't ever had people do those, those really thorough environmental investigations before. Um, and so that's how these species were identified at Yaliri. And they were actually identified by BHP before Cameco came along under a different set of guidelines for how we need to do subterranean fauna um, studies. So BHP did one of the most extensive drilling programs ever for subterranean fauna, which led to this really high level of evidence saying that these species only exist here, which is what, you know, formed the basis of um, the WA EPA saying the project shouldn't go ahead. So we'll jump to the federal process. So now we've got all this evidence that there are subterranean fauna species that are going to be made extinct. Part of what also has allowed the government to make this decision is that none of those species are actually listed as threatened or endangered species. Um, and that's because they're newly identified species. So they haven't gone through the formal process. And the formal process is through um, the Threatened Species Scientific Committee that need to get an application for a species to become listed as threatened. And the people that hold that information are really the proponents. 
and the government because the government's been given that information. But the government doesn't have a process where they automatically get information and say, oh, we need to give this to the threatened species scientific committee to consider it. Um, and so that's one of the major issues I think that we have with the EPBC Act is that the government get, is privy to all this information about threatened species through these mining application processes, but don't have an internal process necessarily where they take that information and put it through the threatened species scientific committee. So it's relying on third parties or the proponents to initiate that process. And a lot of the time, third parties don't necessarily have all the information they need to do that process. And proponents are unlikely to because it's not in their best interest to have those species formally listed as threatened. Um, the other issue is, is, yes, with the bilateral agreement. And um, so the bilateral agreement, every state and territory has them. And, and what it kind of does is that the, um, it's, it's called an assessment bilateral. So it means that the federal government defers responsibility to do the assessment to the state or territory government. And in doing that, they um, accredit a state process. And so through that accreditation, what they're doing is accrediting the, the assessment process, um, but they're not really accrediting the state laws or how um, or how political influence affects a decision. So I think that's that's another thing that um, we should look at as well is is how these bilateral agreements actually accredit a system when that system is set up in the way that, for example, the WA system is set up where a minister can override a decision that the EPA recommends and that the appeals process recommends. Um, they were the two things that I wanted to say and I wanted to also just share with everybody a link that I'm just going to copy into the comments. Um, there's a website called Don't Nuke the Climate that's been set up and on that site there's a page um, called uh, Nuclear Ban and in that on that page, there's uh, more information, not just about uranium mining and keeping the uranium trigger, but also about nuclear power um, and keeping the prohibition on nuclear power through that act. Um, and this is in the context that the Mineral, Minerals Council of Australia and other pro-nuclear groups um, are really actively lobbying the government to remove the uranium trigger and the nuclear ban, nuclear power prohibition. So I'd really recommend that you take a look at that website and that information to help inform your submission and also share it, um, share it with people that you think might also have time and space to write a submission in the next two weeks. Thanks. Thanks, Mia. And please take a look at the website Mia refers to, don'tnuketheclimate.org.au. This website has a, is a great resource, particularly under the nuclear ban uh, heading, and this will help you to make your submissions that we encourage you all to do. I'll also put a link in today's notes on our website. The nuclear industry are pushing for the nuclear power ban and the uranium trigger to be lifted from the current review of the Environment Protection and Biodiversity Conservation Act 1999. The Ulyria uranium mine assessment process is a very clear indication of how environmental laws are failing in fair, transparent processes. 
we urgently need improved environmental laws that prevent political influence and improve the agility in the Federal Environmental Department to protect species from becoming extinct. A video of this webinar can be viewed at www.vimeo.com forward slash 4048390013. And that's all we have time for today. I'd like to give a massive thanks to Ruby Hamilton, Australian Conservation Foundation Environmental Investigator, and Mia Pepper from the Mineral Policy Institute, giving us all a wealth of information to encourage us to write those submissions. The links can be found at our website at www.3cr.org.au forward slash radioactive. Thanks for listening to the 3CR Radioactive Show. You can download the podcast of this show at www.3cr.org.au forward slash radioactive. We'd love to hear from you, so contact us on email radioactiveshow.3cr at gmail.com. The Radioactive Show was produced with the support of Friends of the Earth's Anti-Nuclear and Clean Energy Collective for the studios of 3CR Melbourne on the lands of the Rwandari people of the Kula Nation in Fitzroy, Victoria. It's broadcast nationally on the Community Radio Network. Thanks for listening. Tune in next week for more peace, nuclear and energy issues.